You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience. It is a new week here at our Northern Command Center, July 15th, as we head through the dog days of the summer here. It is hot. It is humid. But it is the same ripe climate that we always have for telling the truth. The one and only source of independent conservative truth for what matters. What matters to Americans of all stripes, not just conservatives. And if you want to think of any issue that matters to all Americans equally, there's nothing like the American flag. I want to start off today's show by saluting the American flag with a beautiful rendition of the national anthem by the Marine Band. I know we don't have video yet, which we will get pretty soon, video component to this show. But I want everyone to join me putting your hand over your heart and saluting our flag. There you have it, folks, the beautiful rendition of the Star Spangled Banner by the Marine Band, the U.S. Marine Band. And, uh, you know, there's something special about living where I do. You don't usually think of Baltimore as a very patriotic place these days. But I live about 10 miles from Fort McHenry, where this national anthem was born Francis Scott Key, you got the famous Key Bridge named after him here. He was a young American lawyer who had boarded this British ship in order to secure the release of a prisoner. But then while he was there, the British kept him under guard, kind of house arrest on a boat in the Baltimore Harbor while they were bombarding bombarding with their you know, superior navy, naval power, which was unrivaled at that point in history in the War of 1812. But this was 1814 already. September 13th is a rainy day. 
And Francis Scott Key, being behind enemy lines, got a unique view of what was going on. And he wrote later, quote, it seemed as though Mother Earth had opened and was vomiting shot and shell in a sheet of fire and brimstone. But despite the 25-hour bombardment, he noticed that at dawn's early light, dawn's early light of September 14th, the next morning, the American flag was still there, raised above Fort McHenry, not the Union Jack flag flying over that fort. The Baltimore Patriot, which was the newspaper at the time, now we have the Baltimore Scum here, otherwise known as the Baltimore Sun, but the Baltimore Patriot um, published and printed that poem a couple weeks later, which is now called the Star-Spangled Banner. You know exactly why I'm talking about this today. Obviously, you had, among the many stories over the weekend, with the violence throughout our country in anticipation of ICE raids, you know, kind of enforcing the law against those Central Americans who came recently and gratuitously had endless due process that they're not entitled to, and they were asked to leave, and they didn't leave. Now, we're going to get to, in the coming days, how many people are actually being deported. There's a lot of noise, and it doesn't seem like much is happening. Now, I'm all for quiet deportations, that the message goes back to Guatemala, but not so much in America, because we don't want our agents in danger. And by the way, you know, for those who are doubting, oh, well, what does it mean putting agents in danger? Well, I think now you see with that Antifa guy in Washington State who literally tried to blow up a propane tank to blow up the entire ice center, which would have killed all the agents and the illegal alien detainees. So this is certainly a very grave situation. But I, I cannot tell how many people are actually being deported. I don't think too many. But that's neither here nor there for, for today's point. The point I wanted to make, so in the facility in Aurora, Colorado, you had a bunch of illegal alien protesters, some were Antifa guys, probably American citizens, on their behalf, lowering the American flag at that detention facility and raising the Mexican flag. You know what? It took a little while to get that under control. It was raised there for quite some time. And, you know, I was thinking that for quite some time, this has really been the linchpin to this issue. Let me explain to you what I mean. A lot of people bristle, and when I say people, I mean elites. Even on my side, bristle when we mention or refer to the border situation as an invasion. Oh, no, 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 these are poor migrants that are in need. Oh, Daniel, it's not an invasion. It's not an invasion. And what I've always said is I said, look, you're right. It's not an invasion. It's much worse than an invasion. An invasion is definitive, but it's temporary if you push it back. It's a line that they could put run over on you, but you could push that back, and there might be some you know physical damage, buildings destroyed, but you could repair that. What you can't repair is the subtle invasion of social transfer 
transformation without representation, where they come here, where they unilaterally are able to steal our census, be counted for reapportionment, steal our citizenship, get access to our hospitals and welfare and health care, change our language, change our culture, sue us and get all sorts of benefits. Have the political laws and politics flipped on its head all for them. It's worse than an invasion. And I've been trying to find different ways to bring out this point. And what happened was, over the weekend, was this event that, to me, really brought out that point. What's the epitome of an invasion? America was really only invaded directly one time, and and that was early on in our history, the War of 1812. You obviously did have Pearl Harbor, but it was a one-time air bombing of what was still not officially a state, but it was a naval base, later became a state, far away from the mainland. But our mainland was attacked one time directly, and America was young and weak at the time. Great Britain had the, um, you know, they were the naval power of the entire world. It really wasn't clear that we were going to survive as a country. A lot of people forget that the War of 1812 is often forgotten about. You think, all right, you know, you won the Revolutionary War, all is good. And it was good. But... You know, less than uh, whatever, just just 25 years later, they came back. But even with this profound asymmetrical invasion, guess what? Gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. And yet... That's when you have a real invasion. But when you have an invasion embedded in your society that rots you out from the inside out, not from the outside in, where they create a scenario where they are the strongest constituency, not among public opinion, but among the political elites, that they therefore do not enforce laws on their behalf, they could get to a point where they could get our federal government to stand down from enforcing laws and, yes, even desecrate the American flag over our immigration enforcement agency's facility and raise the Mexican flag. What the British could not do with the Union Jack, with their superior naval forces at Fort McHenry, a ragtag group of illegal aliens and their supporters here, because of the fifth column that we have allowed to remain in this country, we're able to successfully raise the Mexican flag over the very agency that's responsible with enforcing those very foundational sovereignty laws to ensure that they don't remain in the country to begin with. That is an unbelievable thought that I wanted to share with you. But there's something more going on here as well. A lot of people don't realize The flag issue is really what turned the tide in the border fight of 2006. Now, that border fight is very fond to me 
For those of you who don't know, that was the event that pretty much got me into professional politics. I was young, still in college, about to decide in a senior year or so, deciding exactly what I wanted to do. I was a finance major. You know, like my older brother, I was going to go into financial services. But my heart had long been in fighting for what's right for our country and public policy for many, many years. I just never understood how I could earn a living off of it. My parents were like, hey, you know, what type of job is that? (laughs) Um, So, you know, I didn't know what to do, but it was this issue that pushed me off the fence. So I guess if some of you, you know, feel a special or sense a special uh, tone of passion in my voice when it comes to the issue of sovereignty, well, this is where it came from. And what happened was it started out because you not only had the far left, but you had John McCain in the Senate and George W. Bush as president pushing amnesty for illegal aliens here. And remember, at the time, it was almost exclusively Mexicans. How ominous that we predicted it would bring in so many new people. And that was before the Central Americans. So um, they started pushing an amnesty bill. And like, like always, it was, it was a struggle. The American people, almost all of them, don't like this. On no issue is there a greater gulf between up and down, not left and right, than on this issue. I always joke around that I say the average swing voter, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, the average swing voter is to the right of where Breitbart is on immigration. And then certainly when you get into the elite conservative thought in Washington, and I say that you know facetiously, they are to the left of where swing voters are in America. They had him and Haw apologize. No, we just want to enforce the laws, but we care about the illegals. We're going to get better treatment at the facilities. And most Americans are like, what the heck? Why should we be paying a dime for them? Especially that the fact that this is not the first time that we've been manipulated for decade after decade after decade. We were promised in 1986 that that would be the end of it. We were promised a ban on working, on them working here. We were promised exit entry to vet out visa overstays. We were promised a wall. We were promised operational control of the border. We were promised deportations. We are promised full enforcement. What has ever happened with that? No. Now it's time you fulfill our needs. It's not very hard to give that over. But somehow there's almost not a single member of Congress and certainly not a single senator and, and really nobody in this administration in the White House who's capable of articulating that. But that is where the American people are. But nonetheless, as I noted to you before from um, uh, Art Zolberg, he's a great Im- immigration historian, and he explains why is it that every time there was an immigration fight in Congress, the people wanted it to go to the right, but it went to the left. And he says it's because all the organized political activity and money is all on the open border side, even though it's an 80-20 issue among the American people. But yet they're able to get, get peel off even elements of the right, so to speak, among the political elites, elected members, NGOs in D.C. 
So, you know, and, and talk radio wasn't nearly as bad and corrupt as it is today, but they were, you know, somewhat slow to get involved. And what happened was they started to have protests. Now, remember, the American people were against this, but they didn't realize how severe the problem was. Then they saw thousands of illegals march in the streets of California and other places. And they were like, holy hell, we didn't realize how bad the invasion was. It was too subtle of an invasion. See, the other side thought that they were at score points from showing power. But that only helps when you're an American and you want to show that your view is well represented among the citizenry. But if you want to have a protest of illegal aliens, the more there are, the more people are like, wait a minute. I didn't realize the problem was that bad. And then they started with the Mexican flags. With the Mexican flags. That was the turning point in the fight of 2006. That was the turning point. Now, I was speaking with Michelle Malkin about it. Um, Earlier today, she emailed me. She's actually coming out with her latest book, Open Borders, Inc., going through some of the players behind this. And she she asked me for, you know, a blurb and endorsement of her book. And, you know, I wrote her, I just, you know, I said, it's kind of bizarre. You're asking me, um, you know, I got like, what, 70,000 followers on Twitter. She has 2 million. I don't know what you want, you know, what I'm going to bring to you, but I'm certainly honored to do it. And Michelle was really one of the early voices of investigative journalism on the right, actually did stuff when conservative media online was still in its infancy, but it was very potent and effective. The late 90s, early 2000s, she was a big part of that. And she was really leading that fight in 2006. And, and I, I t- tell her all the time that she really inspired me to get involved, um, that all my work is really a product of her inspiration in that 2006 fight. And she gave me a quote for my latest article on this issue. But she reminded me of this, that it all started in the spring of 2006. And they, um, at Montebello High School in Southern California, where they raised the, the Mexican flag over the American flag. And then the flag war spread to Florida, Texas, Arizona, and Colorado. And at the time, Michelle wrote an article predicting that this would be the nail in the coffin. I'm actually going to have a link to it in my article of any amnesty plan. And she was right. It galvanized the American people. My hope is that we could finally galvanize these brain-dead people who have been self-appointed as conservative leaders in the media to have a fight over what happened in Aurora, Colorado, to finally focus on the American people, to finally get Republicans in this administration and in Congress to do the right thing. It is unbelievable how broken their political barometer is on this issue. Let me start out you know, by talking, you know, when we talk about the polling data and where the American people are and how they are so much further to the right than where even people who call themselves conservatives but are in Washington, 
Let's take the president's comments over the weekend. This is the big news. The president said that Elon Omar, the Hamas member that got elected from Minneapolis, <clears throat> should go back home. And oh my gosh, I mean, everyone on the pseudo right and the thumb sucking right is like, oh no, this is, do you don't understand? They're going to call us racist and they're calling us racist. And oh my gosh, duck for cover. We're so embarrassed. And they think this is like a cardinal sin. This is like a hundred zero issue. Oh my gosh, you're, you're racist. And, and really like, you know, when most of you saw that comment and I, and I would imagine even people, you have to go pretty far into the Democrat coalition to get a negative response to this. They're like, no, he was saying a very simple thought. It had nothing, nothing to do with race. If anything, you could accuse him of being anti-immigrant, not racist. But even on the immigration front, I think most people recognize that he was saying a simple point. That everyone knows she's a naturalized citizen. And we can't deport naturalized citizens. We're not making that point. Although I will say, if she did engage in marriage and immigration fraud, which there's a lot of evidence she might have, pending a trial and proof that she indeed engaged in that, she can and should be denaturalized and therefore deported in her case. But the broader point is, Everyone understands there is a difference between an immigrant, even a naturalized citizen, than a natural-born citizen in the sense that if you came from somewhere and you come here and trash America, we're not making a legal point that you could be deported for trashing America once you're naturalized. You shouldn't be naturalized if you're trashing them before, and that's a whole other story. Go back home. It's a very simple reaction. There's a lot of wonderful immigrants who come here and love America. So, yeah, I mean, if you come here and you hate on America, go home. She has a 9% approval rating. Okay, I mean, like, I think everyone gets that. This is not a racial thing. It's not even a broadly, broadly immigration issue. It's that she hates America, but because she happened to have come from Somalia, where you can't say that to other people, there's nowhere for them to go, go back home if you don't like it. It's a ve- It's a very simple point that I think everyone gets. But even like staunch conservatives on our side are scared of his comments. I don't get it. And look, I've attacked the president on a lot of things recently. But I just don't think they understand where the political equilibrium is on this issue. Their political thermometer and barometer is completely broken. That's a reality. It's the same thing. It's nothing to do with race. You could have someone from Canada. With blonde hair, is totally white, born a couple miles from Buffalo. They come here, and let's say they start agitating every second. America this, America's bad, America does this, you know, Canada's so much better, Canada this. So I think the natural reaction from everyone will be, so if you like it there so much and you don't like America, why don't you go back to Canada? I mean, it's just a very simple statement. Could agree or disagree. It's nothing to do with racism. I think everyone gets that. But speaking of Buffalo, actually, I have my article out today. I I promised you guys um, we would have Michael Kearns on the show. We're not going to have him on the show today, but later on, we will have briefly a special candidate running for Senate in Alabama, Arnold Mooney. 
He's the father of my colleague, Gaston Mooney, who helped co-found CRCRTV before the merger. He's now part of the executive leadership of the merge company. So you don't you don't hear from him much, but he's certainly behind a lot of the operation because of his efforts. People like me are able to just focus on the policies while he, you know, handles the corporate stuff. So he's certainly been a tremendous, tremendous asset. And now his dad's running for Senate in Alabama. So we'll have him on soon. But I wanted to have Michael Kearns on, and I'm trying to get a hold of him. He's the Erie County clerk. And this guy's also, he's a Democrat. Now, clearly, you look at his history, he's more of a maverick. At some point, he switched to run as a Republican for a certain office because he was ticked off the Democrats. He's still registered as a Democrat. He's very independent-minded. But why is it that the first person to stand for national sovereignty is actually a Democrat? Everyone's just... Rolling over as these states give illegals all sorts of benefits, driver's licenses. Wait a minute. Our laws say you can't do that. And he's standing up for it. It's time we reset the baseline entirely on this issue. We're, we're, we're too nuanced. Oh, you don't understand it. You can't have the amendment. Uh you know, anything we want to do to illegals, we just can't do it. But anything illegals want to do, they, yeah, they could do it. I mean, they could get benefits, they could get driver's licenses, they could get birthright citizenship, they, everything's asylum. There's just nothing we can do. Your average American looks at them like BS. I don't understand why they're here. And with that, I want to read to you what might be the most important article of the year, much less month. We'll link to it in show notes. This is Axios. Focus group, Trump's immigration edge. It's amazing how they feel like they discovered America, literally discovered America, what Americans think. Warren, Michigan. Every word of this article is important. The majority of a group of 12 swing voters we spoke to here said that they think President Trump is handling the immigration crisis professionally and responsibly. Why it matters. By all accounts, immigration is and will be one of the most important issues of the 2020 presidential election. And it could help Trump win over even some voters who haven't always supported Republicans. That was the main takeaway from the Engageous FPG focus group I watched here last week. This is an Axis reporter, um, Alexei McAmmond. So this focus group, which included nine people who voted for Barack Obama in 2012 and Trump in 2016, and three who flipped from Romney to Hillary Clinton. Think about that. Right, Th- those are the most important voters. People who voted for, you know, your Romney, Hillary voters that went against Trump, and the Obama Trump voters that swung towards Trump. Those are the people that you got to get. And they explain this town is 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 really a slice of America. It's a small blue area in a red county. It narrowly went for Clinton fifty one point nine percent to Trump's forty two point seven percent, but Trump. Trump won Macomb County by 48,351 votes. Warren was one of the most divided areas in the country. What did they find? I want to hear, I want you to listen to what your average American who doesn't do political Twitter all day and is not into nuancing my responses because I don't want to be perceived as racist. Most people just say what's on their mind and their common sense. 
Too many of my even conservative colleagues, they're so caught up in the Twitter bubble and the political bubble that they, they claim to fight the media, but they start thinking like them. They lose common sense. So anyway, I'm, I'm going to continue reading here. Immigration came up many times when these swing voters were asked to discuss their top issue heading into, into the presidential election. Their responses sounded a lot like America first message President Trump has been championing. And the room got really animated when discussing their opposition to 2012 to 2020 Democrats proposing to give health care to undocumented immigrants. Why would you want to give it to another person from a different country for free? Larry S. asked, quote, give them free benefits. This, that and the other thing that is ridiculous, said Rhonda H. They'll come from anywhere and get a house and a car, too. Quote, we need to focus on Americans and not the immigrants, said Paul T. Quote, we shouldn't give away our birthright like candy, said Sean M., meaning that all they have to do is cross the border illegally, pop out a kid, and they're a U.S. citizen. Two illegals do not make, do not a citizen make, she added. Wow, is that brilliant? I mean, I'm telling you, folks, that's brilliant. Two illegals do not a citizen make. Man, is that brilliant. I wish I would have thought of that. And I've been doing immigration for 13 years, and this is just a run-of-the-mill citizen. This issue, I mean, well, even some of my friends, Daniel, don't say anchor baby. You can't say the, I used to say like the word bop out a kid and we had a previous editor even like, Daniel, watch out when you say that. Like, this is what, I mean, this is what your average Americans like, everyone understands it's ridiculous. If anything, people that are true immigrants are really insulted by this. You know, we went through the right process and we were accepted in, you could just come here and steal and, and, and infiltrate and unilaterally assert jurisdiction? No way. Let me continue. Quote, I don't want to be a jerk, said Rhonda H. I feel terrible for these people, but there are people in this country who are struggling to survive. We need to focus on the United States. I mean, look at that. Others mentioned veterans or homeless people in the U.S. who they thought should be prioritized over immigrants. Quote, veterans need more help. So that kind of, that doesn't make me happy that they really haven't done more for them, said Kathleen R., a few others bemoan the endless supply of migrants who make their way to the U.S. There's no end in sight, said Patricia B. A Romney-Clinton voter. It's just frustrating, endless amount of people. Look at this. A Romney. This is a person who voted for Romney and went away and voted for Clinton against Trump. Against Trump. So, I mean, if anyone would be anti-Trump on this, you would think it would be her. But no, she's not. Oh, my gosh. We need to do more for the migrants. I'm so worried about their conditions at the border. She's like, no, there's an endless supply of them. There's no end in sight. Who's going to end this? Larry S., an Obama-Trump voter, the other way around, said he he's noticed an increase in foreigners among Michigan's population. We're helping everybody else. So they're coming here for free, and we're babying them. He said, it's time we stop. we got to think about us first. I mean, look, look at the just simple common sense. These guys aren't hateful people. But it's just... Common sense. Even those who disagree with the president's way of handling it found it agreement. His stance, quote, his stance on immigration is a little too far for me, but I tend to agree with it, said Anthony O. His grandparents came from Italy the right way, so to see people not following the rules, I have a problem with that. And then they end the article saying, eight of these 12 participants, including one Romney-Clinton voter, agreed with the following statement. Quote, when we give migrants food, clothing, toiletries, and shelter, all we're doing is encouraging more of them to come to the U.S., and we don't want that. And yet, every Republican is clamoring at these hearings. As the Democrats hold hearing after hearing, yes, yes, no, we care about the migrants. 
Where are Senate Republicans holding hearings on what's good for Americans? On the sanctuary cities? On the endless crime, DUIs, drug trafficking, gangs, fiscal cost? Who's paying for all this? We should have a who's paying for all this hearing. This is what rips my soul out. I'm okay if people are brainwashed and they're, and they're not as conservative as me. And I'm at peace with knowing I did everything I can and the people don't buy what I'm saying. But most people do. I mean, you saw that in the Harvard-Harris poll last week by a two-to-one margin, self-described moderates and independents said to, quote, turn them back immediately. Even 45% of Hillary voters said turn them back immediately. And even then, the, the, the question was asked for... Um, for, I guess, the wording was something like questionable asylees. So it connotes that like there's some legitimacy of asylum. It's questionable. But it's really, that's not even what's happening now. They're not even expressing asylum. It's just straight up. We're saying you come with a kid, you, we bring you in, you're released. And that, and that leads me to, I know a lot of you are going to ask me, well, didn't the administration publish a regulation change to finally say, um, you know, if you could... If you could have asked for asylum in Mexico, you can't, you're not eligible for asylum. Now, first off, I hate to sound like a jerk, but like, dude, I called for that last June. So, like, that, that's a slam dunk. I mean, it, it's the foundation of this. It's, it's literally in the international treaties. We, we said that all along. If, if you could have claimed asylum, you're not eligible. Okay, now you might say, well, it's better late than ever. So um, it's really a question mark. I, I don't know the answer to this yet, but I think the question we need to answer is the following. So they're not eligible. So what? What is the consequence of that? I have two ways of explaining that. One way is I know all of you coming to the border by definition, meaning as opposed to, let's say, by sea, it could be you never traversed a country. But if you're coming by the Mexican border, by definition, that means you should have asked for asylum there, and we're going to turn you back. We're not going to let you in. We're going to immediately remove you. Is that what they're saying? Or are they saying, no, we're going to continue letting you in. We're going to continue releasing you with a notice to appear. It's just that when we have this bogus court case that you'll never show up to anyway, you know, through the adjudication, we're going to consider this as not a proper credible fear. My fear is that it's more the latter than the former. If it is the former, this should end it. And it's great. But if not, I don't think it's going to matter much because, again, most of them aren't even expressing asylum. They're not even – that's what I'm saying. It might have catalyzed the wave at the beginning last year, but that's not what's happening now. If anything, it's more the people coming from the other countries like Cuba. Now, I'm not saying they're legitimate. They're, they're not legitimate asylees, but they're at least – they are asking for it. The Central Americans aren't even asking for it. We've just created a straight-up entitlement for them to come here. They all have relatives, and they all want to come here. That's all it is. Y'all have relatives because we've allowed them to steal our sovereignty. So, um, that's my issue here. 
Will the flag fight, will that be a galvanizing moment? The problem is you need a modicum of conservative talkers to make it a galvanizing moment. And, um, you know, as much as we didn't like the Republican Party in 06, I mean, the Overton window has shifted so far to the left among the political class, I don't even know what to say anymore. So that is that is with that. I have a lot more to say on this, but I do want to get to my guest. And as I mentioned at the top of the hour, there is someone special running for Senate in Alabama. The father of my coworker, Gaston Mooney, Arnold Mooney is his name. And just real briefly before I introduce the guest, it, it is simply stupefying that we could have a Republican Senate. Remember, everyone's like, oh, Democrats control Congress. No, they control the House. Last time I checked, they control the Senate. But you might have missed it because you're not seeing any committee-level action, any floor-level action on anything conservative, on any issue, immigration, spending, debt, health care, you name it. Um, it is. I don't even know what they do for a living there. And there are we, – we put out a list of about a dozen states where – these are states where Trump carried, often by substantial margins in 2016 – and either they are open seats, in the case of Alabama, it's unique, there's actually a Democrat there, or there's you know incumbent Republicans running for re-election that have liberty scores that are F-. And there's no effort to back conservatives to recruit against these people, or at least in the open or Democrat seats to make sure the better Republican wins. And the question is, how are we going to change anything if we continue repeating insanity. In other words, let's say you have the best outcome of this election. Trump wins re-election and Republicans win back the House. All right, well, we're no better off than the first two years of this administration where we got nothing done because we had Democrats de facto controlling Congress and literally controlling the outcome of every budget battle, by the way, during those first two years. What's going to change with the same leadership? That's the question we're going to ask to our guest. Um, Arnold Mooney is in the state legislature. Now he's in the Alabama State House representing suburban suburban Birmingham. And he has made quite a splash in that legislature. He was a original co-sponsor of this big bill many of you have heard about. Um, the strongest pro-life bill in the country, the Human Life Protection Act, where, of course, now, because of judicial supremacy, we have allowed the courts to do whatever they want with it. Um, but he was also, at a time when everyone's running away from biblical values, refuses to hold the line on social conservatism. Remember, just like the political leadership has a broken political barometer on immigration, I believe they have a broken uh, per, uh, political barometer on traditional values. So he sponsored the Ten Commandments ballot initiative to prevent federal judges from banning their display. And you know what? When the people got to vote, guess what? <laughs> it was affirmed 72 to 28% um, by the state's voters last November. He's also um, the sponsor of the state's right to work constitutional amendment. So again, fiscal, social, conservative, um, Lots of stuff going on there. He's one of the few holding the line against the 10 cent gas tax increase that, yes, even a Republican leadership has done. Uh, his prior political experience in the 1970s, he worked for Senator James Allen, 
It's funny, James Allen was actually a Democrat, but he was more conservative than any Republican who is serving in that chamber today. So with no further ado, Arnold Mooney, welcome to the to the conservative conscience for the first time, hopefully not the last time. How you doing? I'm doing very well, Daniel. Thank you. I am excited to be with you. You're a great friend and uh, I look forward to uh, talking with you and I hope uh, we have a chance to go over a lot of interesting things today. Sure, and we're probably going to have to have several episodes because there's certainly a lot to go uh, go attack today. Uh, again, just to reiterate, um, you know, so nobody comes out with anything like, "Hey, you know, this guy's son, uh, he's a he's a leader of uh, Conservative Review. He's he helped found it." Yes, we know. We already disclosed that. So, you know, full disclosure: he is the father of my colleague. Let's get that out of the way. Um, Arnold, here's my question to you. A lot of my audience is extremely frustrated that, and when I say frustrated, I don't mean just with Democrats. I don't mean just with a lot of promises in this administration that don't get fulfilled. I don't just mean with establishment Republicans. I mean, there's a lot of people that get elected as Tea Party style conservatives. And let's start out with immigration. This is an opinion, and you could agree or disagree, but I think my audience gets the impression that there is not a single Republican. There's a couple in the House, not a single one in the Senate standing up for American sovereignty. A couple might believe in it privately. They're kind of in the witness protection program. Um, You are taking over the Jeff Sessions seat. Now, you got Doug Jones, a Democrat, in there now. I remember when we had the first Central American influx, which was a fraction of what, what, what's going on today, and every day, Senator Sessions was a one-man think tank. He was, wasn't just a, a vote. He was a voice. He was putting out material um, on everything, giving the American point of view. Nobody is doing that. Could you give our listeners the confidence that if you're going to if you're going to go to the Senate, you're not just going to be a quiet conservative. You're actually going to be a voice like Jeff Sessions was. There's no question about that. Um, Americans are frustrated. I'm frustrated, but our frustration is not going to get us anywhere. We've got to take action. And the things that can be done are to do exactly what Jeff did as a senator from the state of Alabama. He did a wonderful job expressing what was clear legal position sovereignty, everything about our nation in relation to uh, immigration. You know, I have to look at it from the standpoint that uh, following that lead would be a, a tremendously effective manner in which to begin to speak to the immigration issue every day, addressing it, speaking to the situation. You know, I'm, I'm excited that, uh, you know, our president's run on that issue and he was elected on that issue, and I, I support that. You know, he's been trying to do everything he said he was going to do. Uh, you know, he hasn't gotten a tremendous amount of help. I even, in our state legislature, along with a, another senator, uh, proposed an amendment that would, um, excuse me, a, a bill. It would, wasn't an amendment, but an actual bill. It would have just simply allowed our citizens to speak to their position supporting the situation in reining in all of this illegal crossing of our borders. Uh, it would have allowed people to just simply use a little piece of their income tax refund to send it for, to help support building the wall. You know, I, I even support that on the federal level. That's a common sense thing to do. Let the people speak. Let them get out there and, and give their positions as well. And I think you're dead right, uh, Daniel, that the vast majority of Americans are silent because they've not been 
asked about it. They've not been given the opportunity. But polling clearly shows that Americans support reining in all of this illegal immigration. It, it, exactly. It, it's it's bizarre. But I will tell you, every day is another story about the needs, wants, and desires of immigrant care, illegal aliens. And they're not immigrants. They're illegal aliens at the border. Um, and I'm not seeing a single hearing held in the Senate where Republicans do control the committees on the cost, the crime, all the sanctuary issues. I mean, there's just every day Senator Sessions was putting out another study, another report, more data. And I mean, look, there's some probably mutual friends of ours that I think we respect, but they're awfully quiet. They're not saying bad things on the issue, but there is not a single Jeff Sessions. So I think a lot of people are definitely looking for that if you're talking Alabama Senate. I agree completely with you. I mean, there's no question that... Um, well, obviously, you've got to be in the leadership of a committee to try to pull that off. But you can every day that the Senate's in session, and even every day that it's not in session, you can constantly be providing the people of America, our citizens, a clear understanding of what's going on. I mean, not even addressing the other issue, just cost alone. I mean, we're somewhere in the hundreds of billions of dollars now. Uh, I think we're approaching, we're past maybe $150 billion on costs this year in relation to this illegal process that's occurring. And those funds could certainly be used somewhere else. It's just, in a sense, it's almost a symptom of what's wrong in our government that we keep spending and expanding and not systematically cutting and doing those things that would provide the best things that are needed to solve problems in our country. We've, I agree with you. I mean, the Jeff Sessions process works. So you mentioned spending and uh, the growth of government. Um, This is an issue where there's nobody left. There's nobody left on a federal level. There's no fiscal conservative left. So we are now spending about 18 to 20% more than in Obama's final year when we thought that was unconscionable. Now, we have coming up, you would think this would be a big point of leverage, not just to, by the way, leverage our immigration priorities, but on spending levels. Come September 30th at midnight, simply by just affirming the status quo, the budget cuts go back into place, and the the, the only – pretty much the only victory we secured from the Tea Party wave of 2010 will be actualized again, and the budget caps will go back into place. There is now a bipartisan – um consensus, as is on every issue, uh, to bust those budget caps, not worry about the debt, but worry about the debt ceiling. It's like saying, I'm just going to remove the stop sign, raise the debt ceiling, bust the budget caps. Now, this is not a quote, but the Washington Post is reporting today from two of their sources that McConnell allegedly told the White House when they were trying to you know, push holding the line on spending, nobody ever lost re-election for spending too much money. What do you say to that? You know, that may be a a true statement. I don't know. But what I will tell you is, it is not the way we should run government in our country. We need to go back to those spending caps. We need to control spending. And quite frankly, I think you would agree with this, Daniel. China is the greatest threat that we face outside of all this illegal, illegal immigration that we've got going on. What they're doing to try and destroy our nation is unbelievable. In this third century, 
It's a question, is there going to be a third century of American exceptionalism leading the free world, leading the economic uh, engine that has produced so much to uh, provide for so many in our world? Or are we going to have a third century of darkness as we uh, try to deal with China? We can't continue to be weak on our debt and on our spending if we're going to have the power and strength we've got to have to deal with that looming giant that we're facing. You know, we've got to get spending under control, and there's no question about it. We can't diplomatically fight China and be serious about that fight unless we get our spending under control. You know, it's, it involves trade, obviously, and uh, so many other things, but everything is interconnected. And I believe what you're saying is true. Coming back and simply saying it's time to go back to what we passed on the caps and uh, cuts that were necessary, that were so appropriate and did so much for us as they were uh, put into effect. I mean, it's, we've got to support that. You know, the truth is you've got to be willing to say no. I mean, it's a situation, you know, as a, a representative in the House of Representatives in Alabama or if I'm in the United States Senate, which I plan to be. You've got to be willing to simply take the heat. You've got to be able to vote the right way. You've got to vote no when you need to vote no, yes when you need to vote yes. You can't go along to get along. That's a prescription for disaster in the long-term future of our nation. What have you learned from your time in the Alabama legislature dealing with establishment Republicans there? And are there any, any lessons you feel you could take with you to the United States Senate? Well, there's no question um, that as a conservative value and fiscal Republican, I've come into conflict at different times. Oftentimes, though, I've had support from the establishment. At times, we haven't. I've had to try to simply stand my position and take it in the midst of the pressure that's there, do it in a reasonable, uh, respectful manner, but keep that position. You can't buckle. If you buckle, you lose the ability to claim the position that you were standing on. We, we find ourselves both in state government and federal government with a feeding frenzy to grow the size of government. And the size of government's not going to solve problems for the American people. Our economy growing, jobs growing, the opportunities we've got now under the Trump tax cut for businesses, uh, the number of jobs that are filled, the jobs that are open even. I mean, we are in a situation now where we are employed at record levels in our state in Alabama. And across the nation, you're seeing great numbers. I think it's just a situation where I, I learned very quickly from working in Washington. I was just a staff guy working up there. I opened mail. I sent it to uh, the various uh, uh, staff people uh, on the uh, senator's staff to write responses, and I began to learn. But the thing, and I learned what they sent back as I sent the mail out. What really struck me was a man there who was concerned about his constituents, and I've learned that. I represent the constituents of my district in the House, and I'm going to represent the constituents of the state of Alabama, the citizens of this state and the nation, but you also take an oath to the Constitution of the United States. I'm going to represent Americans. It's time we got a vote on term limits. Eighty-plus percent of Americans want term limits. Time to stand up and be counted, you know? 
We've got to have a vote. If it means you've got to filibuster, you've got to filibuster. What I have learned repeatedly is you have to be who you are. I'm going to be the same guy the day that I leave the Alabama House of Representatives that I was the day that I went in. That's my prayer. I would be saying the same thing. I am saying the same thing about the United States Senate. The day that I walk in, I'm, I'm going to be measured on that day. The day that I leave, I want to be the same guy that I was the day that I walked in. You can't go along to get along. You've got to hold your positions. You know, you're going to lose sometimes. Maybe you win some. But the point is, you can't win if you don't hold the positions. Exactly. It's funny, on a show today where our theme is the silent majority and how out of touch the political elites in both parties are with where even swing voters are much less conservative voters, term limits is certainly certainly a big one of those issues. And I know that's a big priority for you. Um, we just got a couple minutes left. I I'm, just want to get into... Social values. Look, you know, I'm I'm a lot younger than you. You're old old enough to be my dad, obviously. And even at my age, I it is breathtaking to watch how quickly the political media elites of this country have de descended into just this decadence that that just it would have shocked my consciousness even 15 years ago and yet it seems no matter how far they go whenever this intersects with a public policy if it has to do with transgenderism in the military and transgender this and transgender that and um you know the federal courts just doing all sorts of things to create social transformation time and again I see not a single Republican wants to touch this with a 10-foot pole. They get the impression, just like they do with immigration, that because the media says something, it means that a majority of the people want this. How do you think you could bring to the Senate, again, kind of the Jeff Sessions values, the Alabama values, that many of us believe the silent majority still believe in, but Republicans are too scared to touch? You know, Daniel, the bottom line is I was a, a kid six years old when I came to know Christ. You know, obviously I didn't understand everything at that age, but I knew I knew enough to, to know that there was something that I wanted that I didn't have. But over the years as I grew and became more knowledgeable, understanding, understanding lordship, uh, the whole process, becoming an evangelical Christian and standing on those values, that's the prism through which I make decisions. My dad always told me, son, your job is to do the next right thing. I've raised my children that way. I believe we all ought to operate that way. For me, my Christian faith makes it clear what I need to do. It's a prism that I see everything through. And it's what I'm going to do in the Senate. I'm going to look at things through that prism. I'm going to stand for the values that are foundational to this nation. I'm going to stand for the values that are foundational to Judeo-Christian ethics. I'm going to stand for who we are as Americans and what is so great about our nation. We can't give up on that. If we do we're going to face the same type of things that we're seeing now. We're going to continue to denigrate and become, uh, you know, much less than what we can be. We're a great nation. We've had wonderful opportunities. We've taken advantage of many of them. We've saved the world a couple of times in wars. I mean, obviously, my dad was a part of the greatest generation. I just have to say, my Christian faith teaches me to love all people, but I've got to stand on value and principle. I've got to stand on what is true and what is right and what is correct. The Constitution of our nation 
to me is is in volatile in the sense of uh, violating it. You cannot violate that Constitution and continue to stand on who we are as a nation. Clearly, values, principles are defined in it. We've got to support an original construction view of the Constitution and present that. You know, in the same way that you do it with the um, I mean, with the uh, uh, immigration issue, uh, you've got to present those issues in that manner and continue to speak on them. Speak on them in love and kindness, but speak on the truth of them. Wow, certainly very powerful words. And, and there's a lot a lot of other issues I want to get to, but we'll, we'll have to have you on again. China, um, judicial supremacy. But I just want to ask one more question because sure. this question sits at the intersection of all these issues. And that is, what do you plan to do? Because this is very internal and this is very important in the role of any conservative going into particularly the Senate chamber. So again, let's say, best case scenario, Trump wins re-election um, and the the Republicans win back control of the House. You look at the Senate and look, obviously, were you to win the nomination or really anyone, it's hard to picture you know Doug Jones holding that seat in a presidential year so that will be a net gain but there's a couple of republican seats in danger either way whether they wind up with 54 roughly where they are now it ain't going to be 60 seats and you know what's going to happen every last thing we want to do with budget with anything they're going to say the same thing they said the first 2 years we just don't have the votes sorry out of luck what's going to be your response to that my response to that is we've got to find a way. We can't just simply sit idly by and let our nation be destroyed by indecision and inactivity. We've got to move forward. There are ways that uh, certain issues become so strong. I mean, we've approved justices, and you know that's something that this Senate's done. They've approved federal justices. I mean, that may be the, the greatest thing they've done, obviously, but we've done that in a different manner. We're going to reach some points where the issue is so important that we cannot look away from it. We've got to address it head on and straight up. We can't walk away. Can't walk away. Well, that's that's certainly a message that of urgency that you don't see from a lot of uh, members of the Senate right now. Um, anyone who wants to support your campaign, if anyone in my audience uh, likes what they hear, where could they go? They can simply go to ArnoldMooney.com, and it's got all the connections there to begin to pick up and be involved, uh, contact us, whatever. We're excited about this opportunity, and we look forward to growing every day and putting together a great uh, victory come uh, March in our primary, and then obviously taking the seat back in November. Well, certainly God bless you for doing this later on in your life, willing to give up uh, you know, your retirement in Alabama and go to the, go to the swamp. I certainly want to, wouldn't want to do that in your position, but uh, good luck. God bless, and we'll have you back soon. Daniel, I appreciate it. God bless you, and thank you for what you do for conservatism and for the cause of, of our uh, people in the United States and for people all over the world. Conservative values and principles, that's what it's about. Thank you. Have a great day. There you have it, folks. That was Arnold Mooney, candidate for Senate in the great state of Alabama. Now, I want to be honest with you, folks. I have not delved into this race as much as as I should, and I really haven't delved into any of these races just because we truly live in historic times where we've had this degree of intensity of an invasion at our border for a full 12 months, and it intersects with 
you know, two of my biggest issues where I have so much influence over and so much material to go over. I really haven't gotten a chance to go through elections, but I want to do this more often. So let me know who you want to have on the show. Let me know your thoughts on Alex Mooney. Um, not Alex Mooney. He's a congressman, Arnold Mooney, uh, running for Senate in Alabama. Um, and and again, we're happy to have other people on the show. They he has to come on. And again, I know his son, obviously. And you can check out his website. It's Arnold Mooney. Mooney is M-O-O-N-E-Y. But I really meant what I said when I talked about the Jeff Sessions paradigm. He's running for that seat. And it's amazing what one person could do. One person could change the narrative. Look what AOC is doing on the left. I give her credit. She believes in something, and she's indefatigable. Now, she doesn't have to be smart about it because she'll automatically have a media to promote it, even if she says dumb things. But there's no reason we can't have someone putting out smart things, putting out the type of material we try to put out, do it from a Senate office. Jeff Sessions was literally a one-man think tank when he was in the Senate on this issue. It's such a shame we lost him. And that's the thing. I don't know where Ted Cruz is. I don't have time to talk about this today, but he's busy bashing the Tennessee governor for honoring Confederate soldiers. I mean, really? Come on. You have an invasion in your own state and you're awfully quiet about it, but then you'll worry about what's going on in Tennessee? Come on. And Rand Paul's busy trying to quadruple the number of high-skilled visas coming in. Mike Lee's quiet as anything. Um, you know, look, I'm friends with, with Cotton Office, but Tom Cotton was touted as the next Jeff Sessions. He's good on the issue. He'll tweet once in a while, but I'm not seeing robust leadership on that. Josh Hawley is busy with the tech stuff. Where is our voice? I'm talking about one, one. Forget about it, 53. One person in the Senate. So, I mean, we really need to find that. This is not this upcoming election is not so much in my mind about getting 50 or 60 votes because we're very far from 50 or 60 conservatives. It's a matter of getting one that will robustly fight for us at least on the sovereignty issue. So, that's where we are today. Now look, there there is some good news. Believe it or not, the Ninth Circuit actually overturned the lower court opinion on defunding sanctuary cities. We're going to find out a little bit more where this order is headed when it comes to asylum. But again, I'm just telling you, it only matters if they turn them back, and it only matters if you say no to the courts. There, Ken Cuccinelli, who really is a good force in this administration, you could tell he's a lot more than just the director of USCIS. They're saying they're almost done with the public charge order, to take a look at that. And I am hearing late breaking, and I'm going to have to push this off till tomorrow. It might not be true that Trump has invoked 1182F shutoff on Congo. So the good news is, yeah, like that's a no brainer. I mean, we've always done that when we've had terrible outbreaks from any country that you can't come here. But then that will beg the question shouldn't you do an 1182F shutoff on everyone coming to our land border without proper documentation? So this is going to be a very pivotal week. 
And that's why I know you guys tune in here. We are looking to go to video, as I said. Going to have our DC office come up to my home office and uh, set up some video stuff. I don't know the exact date on that, but it's, it is pretty soon. We are going to have a video component to this show. I can't stand video, but you know, everyone tells me that's how you get the message out. So I'm all for um, getting the message out, even if I have a face for radio. But there you go. But we can win this issue. This is a silent majority issue. By the dawn's early light, gave proof through the night that the flag was still there. Well, if we wait too long, that flag will no longer still be there. Thank you all for listening. God bless. Till tomorrow, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.